Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. On Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. It's Sunday, April 19th, 2020. And, uh, yeah, so uh, we're still in the thick of it in terms of the social distancing and the like. Because of the coronavirus. But we're uh, bearing up, more than bearing up, and we've got a lot of things to talk about. Uh, Should I jump right in? I guess we have a lot of ground to cover. Go, go ahead. Okay. Go you, ahead. You'll interrupt me, I'm sure, if you feel it's appropriate. I will. I well, will. we did see one interesting movie this week. Interesting is a big word. Yes. It was called The Rider. It was made in 2018, uh, directed by a woman named uh, Chloe Zhao, uh, starring a fellow named Brady Jandro. And uh, it it's a, oof, how shall I say, a quiet film set in the uh, South Dakota, big vistas, about a young boy's journey. He's about a 20 young years man's old. Journey. Young man's journey, excuse me. I gave away my age there. Who uh, And the simple story is that uh, his life is about horses and uh, riding and rodeo. And he has a rodeo injury that takes away a lot of his capabilities. And he has to sort of readjust as to what he sees the future. Um, not a lot of dialogue. Uh, quiet. A lot of pensive silences. Uh, a lot of brooding. A lot of uh, thinking, if you will. Uh, and I think it was a thoughtful movie, and for me, it resonated. I mean, it's not for everyone, not a lot of singing and dancing, not a lot of laughs, very little humor, um, but uh, sort of an affecting portrayal of, of this young man's journey. I will say the Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone gave it a, a great review at the time, quote from them, an incredible, indelible reimagining of the mythology of the American West. And I will say also that this woman, uh, Chloe Zhao, interesting story, uh, had her early education in Beijing, uh, then went to NYU Film School and uh, was made one film out there on the reservation near uh, South Dakota or in South Dakota. And she, that's when she uh, came across his fellow Brady Jandro. And she thought he was a fantastic presence and he really showed up on film and she was determined to make uh, another film with him in it, if she possibly could. And then these events happened in this fellow's actual life and gave her the opportunity to present this somewhat fictionalized uh, portrayal of uh, real events. Uh, in any event, I found it powerful. What do you think? I thought it was uh, fine. It was just a little bleak for me. Okay. All right. Yeah, we had a little bit of divide. Uh, Granger actually uh, was at least enthusiastic, as enthusiastic as I was. He liked yeah. it quite a bit. Uh, Nico Lesso. Uh, I don't know if that's a male-female divide, I can't say. But uh, in any event, it's something you might consider if you're into that kind of that kind of movie. Well, you don't have to be into that kind of movie, mm-hmm. I think. Um, you don't even have to be in that interested in the mythology of the West. Yeah. I mean, it is about a young man kind of growing up. Well, and he's been a superstar in his community, and then all that is uh, destroyed. Right. By this injury, and he has to regroup, right? And but there, reinvent but, himself. And, but there's no. And, and many of us were not rodeo stars. We're not superstars. Right. But we go through things in our lives where we need to stop and reinvent ourselves. So it's relatable. Um, but uh, you know, it was just uh, some of it's. I felt a little hard to watch. Yeah. Well, look, it's funny that you you look at it that way. The, the other review I had in, in front of me, which I didn't read, which I'll read now, is very much in line with what you were saying. This is The Atlantic. So the rider depicts the process of waking up to the wide world for the first time. And in a sense, that is what's going on. Although, I should say, there's no easy resolution. There's no tremendously happy ending. Yeah. It, I think it, we, saw, real. we saw a snippet of an interview with the director, and mm-hmm. she said, you know, American culture is so focused on the winners. Yeah. I wanted to tell a story that uh, I guess you felt was more true to life. The, you know, the others. Right. Of which there are many. Okay. Um, well, clearly he's, he's not in the, the winners. But uh, anyway, I liked it. Uh, Maybe a winner in a bigger picture. But. Yeah. And by the way, she's a winner. She's, she's directing the next Marvel movie. So <laughs> Good for her. There you go. Um, all right. So what... Day is it? That's right. When I said it was April nineteenth, you said to me a moment ago, "But what day is it?" Yeah. And uh, well, we've been joking about it because uh, I mean, I do feel senile. I do feel like uh, what? Well, you know, <laughs> I I've been around nursing homes since I was sixteen and was uh, you know a nurse's aide in the summer, and it's kind of a typical 
uh, people in a nursing home never know what day it is because uh-huh. every day is exactly the same. Uh-huh. And with the COVID-19, that's what we've been going through. Uh, and, you know, even though I have my work yeah. and I'm doing, you know, live classes right. uh, online kind of thing, uh, I still, I'm so out of rhythm. And it turns out everybody else is in the same boat. Right. There's an no article in the New York Times uh, even, um, I guess, on Saturday Night Live, they had Tom Hanks saying, you know, every day is Saturday now. Yeah. You know, there's no there's no Saturday. Uh, it's all just, you know, kind of um, random, you know, what do I do today? Yeah, it's a lack of, of structure. Uh, right. So to the extent where uh, one uh, news anchor in Cleveland actually has instituted kind of a game show presentation uh, in his broadcast of, you know, what day is it? Uh, and uh, lets people know yeah, today see. is Monday, Monday right. etc. So uh, that's probably uh, quite, um, you know, helpful. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's it's tough because there's no Friday. There's right. no Friday happy hour it's, it's, that it, announces it's Saturday. Just I never know when it's Friday or Saturday. But it's a new way of Sunday I catch on because you know we do the podcast. Maybe those that's those are old habits that we can put aside, you know. It's 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 a new way of looking at things. Well, I think that uh, now that uh, we're both uh, jumping into retirement. It's going to be that, that way. That will be that way yeah. for us. But I think. It's a uh, good introduction for us. For, you know, for the whole. You know, for everybody, you don't yeah. have those markers. The right. things, you know, the class you go to on Tuesdays, uh, you know, the meeting you usually have on Wednesdays, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, listen, as I know, say to people now. I always when, swim on Thursday morning. Right. So now I don't swim on Thursday morning. When people say to me something about retirement, they say, hey, we're all retired now. So, you know, it's the same idea. Uh, we're all well, making a big they, adjustment. they're supposed to be working at home <laughs> with their pants on, yeah. I hope. I mean, those are the little things you can do. You should put pants on. Yeah, okay. I think you should get dressed. All right. You're going off topic, but I don't disagree with you. Uh, here's, here's the way it should be done. Here's the way it should be done. Israel. Israel uh, was confronting what every country's been confronting, which is uh, concern about whether they had the right equipment and the right medical supplies. Uh, this is a few weeks ago, and uh, they didn't. And uh, so how did Israel solve this problem? Well, the New York Times has the answer, and it's a surprising answer. The answer is they went to Mossad, the intelligence agency for Israel, which is in charge of covert operations in the name of protecting Israel. And they've become very notorious in films and and, and in the news. Novels. Yes. (laughs) uh, They're a uh, notorious uh, international espionage group, uh, quite successful, sometimes quite violent. Uh, and yet, here they are getting medical supplies. Uh, well, that is the group I'd put on the job, right? <laughs> Listen, we're, they we're can't all, do it. We're all laughing. They probably know all kinds of networks. Uh, that's exactly what it is. That's yeah. exactly what it is. So what they did was uh, they uh, they got all kinds of uh, equipment. Uh, what did they get? They got uh, a hundred thousand coronavirus testing kits, uh, one point five million surgical masks, tens of thousands of Thousands of N95 masks, protective coveralls for first aid crews. Uh, all right, I get the picture. Right. right. They got it all. Yeah. And they got know-how and they got uh, technology so they can make their own uh, ventilators. It's crazy. Uh, and the way that they were able to do it. And I think they have infrastructure. They have ways of transporting things. Right. Figuring out how to th- get things transported. Right. There's Because uh, they're used to they transporting have, spies. Yes. They have all kinds of connections. They yeah. have all kinds of ways of getting things done. And at one point they say and they're some... not limited yeah. to the strictly legal. No, there's just some question about did they do this? Uh, did everything they do was it entirely kosher? Uh, to coin a phrase, and the article says, ah, you know, sometimes you kosher never know. Kosher in the sense we're saving lives. Yeah, kosher in that sense. But uh, did they break some laws? Did they play dirty? That was not ruled out. Uh, <laughs> but you know, they got it done, and they uh, they quote here. A professor Yisach Christ, who's, who was the head of the of Sheba Medical Center, and he says, as he says, it's only in Israel that the Sheba Hospital could have enlisted the help of Mossad. Can you imagine Mount Sinai in New York asking the CIA to get in medical supplies? And the answer is you couldn't. So Israel playing its part. I'm not sure the CIA is the same as Mossad. Apparently but, not. Yeah. Apparently not. Uh, at least not in the movies, anyway. Um, so I, I, I just. Another article, Virus Fallout, and uh, the funny thing is that uh, 
It's uh, another article about the jigsaw puzzle demand explosion. Mm-hmm. And these jigsaw puzzle businesses cannot keep up. Okay, Jigsaws have become so important to keeping us all sane during these lockdowns that the Prime Minister of Australia actually announced that uh, jigsaws are essential and people are permitted to go out, just as you are permitted to go out to get groceries, uh, you're permitted to go out in Australia to get more jigsaw puzzles. It's essential. It is essential. And uh, what I was surprised to read that it's not so easy to make them, that you need a big lead time in making them, and they really ensure that all pieces are different. So if you're you're making a thousand-piece puzzle, every single puzzle needs to be different. Every single piece of the puzzle. It needs to be unique. Otherwise, you put it in the wrong place and it won't work, right? Right. So um, that takes a while to hand draw that. And then they have to craft the cutter. And the cutter lasts for only so many uh, pressings of the puzzle. Uh, So it takes time to make these puzzles. You can't just zip off. Well, let me ask you this question. So I gave you uh, a few months ago, or a month or two ago, a Diego Rivera puzzle, a puzzle of a mural of his. And you've been complaining about it bitterly ever since because it's too difficult. It's really hard. Uh, it's really hard. I think it's just been completed. A lot of gray pipes. Yes. It's just, okay. But it's just been completed. Uh, you and Nico completed it. My question to you is... We toughed it out. The question to you is, are you out of puzzles now? No. Okay. I ha- I happen to have a backup. Right. Uh, but I also have puzzles from many years, some of which my mother gave me when she was done with them. Okay. So... I feel uh, better if, about it. If you... You know, you, you can again. still do a puzzle a second time, Yeah. Um, especially if it was a few years ago that you first did it. You still get a certain level of delight. It's one of the few um, things I can count on as a good gift for you is a puzzle. It's it a is good a good puzzle. gift, but you got to be careful. First of all, a lot of first-time puzzle um, people yeah. are making big mistakes, like they're going for the gusto, buying, um, you know... Four or five thousand piece puzzles. All right, so let's be clear. That's really we hard. have a lot of novices here. So the, the the puzzle I just gave you is a thousand piece puzzle. Right. Generally, I get you a thousand pieces. Right. Is that the right number? A thousand piece is a good normal amount. Okay. okay? And is the best brand Ravensburger? Or am I making that? No, up? there are all kinds of good brands, and it okay. really depends on the picture. Sometimes it's a beautiful picture, and it's uh, annoying and impossible to put together. And what made the Diego Rivera puzzle difficult? Was the gray spaces? Well, there were just a lot of a lot of details which were hard to sort out right. and identify mm-hmm. and uh, differentiate. If you can't differentiate, this might go here and this might right. be part of that. It's much harder. Okay. So um, you know, this was only surpassed by the Van Gogh puzzle you gave me last year. Was that hard too? Very hard. Oh, yeah, very, I, very you hard. You know me and Orange. I mean, point, I just I can't help myself. Blue blush brush stroke looks identical, <laughs> and there were a lot you of. You shouldn't them. say that. You shouldn't um, say that about. I put go. that one together too, and yeah. so, and that was fine. You feel a sense of achievement, okay? Yeah. But uh, you know, it was a real grind for yeah. the first slow weeks of putting it together. Um, uh, it, it can be fun to do an easier puzzle. Yeah, no, I, 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 I flies together. You know, the pieces yeah, I, just fly listen, together. I think the Diego like Rivera magic, was like a you're little, in a Harry Potter scene yeah, or something. It was a little bit of a misfire, but I, I what I like the puzzle that you did, which was a piece of artwork by a guy who was into jazz and it has sort of a jazz title. And you actually told me that listening to jazz, you were able to make more progress on the puzzle. It somehow resonated in some odd way. Yes, yes, that that was a fun experience. But uh, I, you know, I had the feeling that his spirit was helping me out. There you go. Was Davis playing. was that was the fellow's name. Stuart Davis. Yeah, yeah. I didn't and, think I remember. Uh, he was that, a jazz Davis. aficionado and uh, totally abstract puzzle. But and that was more fun because once I got going, yeah. I was going. Well, listen, but, uh, I got to play jazz, so you know, it, was, it worked and out. The, so the article was just all about the trials and tribulations mm-hmm. of uh, being able to put this together. But, uh, you know, I'm not a real puzzle snob. Uh, no, I like no. a, you know, I I can do, you hold I can get own. used to the hard ones, but uh, I like a good, silly, easy one, too. Okay. All right. So there's an article in the Times about vodka and, and uh, Russia and... Uh, Really, Moscow in particular, sales of vodka have shot up during the uh, you know self quarantining. Uh, shot up sixty five percent in the month of March, and uh, they say part of, and they say it's a little bit of a problem. They're worried about too much drinking. Uh, vodka is uh, highly really? alcoholic, 
It's wait a six, minute, wait a minute. We worried about this all over the world or just... Moscow. People Moscow. are drinking just like crazy. in Russia? I think there's a lot of drinking in Russia generally. You no, know, well, I've watched shows about yeah. Russia. And? And they drink a lot. And they drink a lot of vodka. Let me tell you something. They're they drinking more. They must have built up their resistance. But here's the problem. Part right. of the problem is there's a widespread false belief uh, across the former Soviet Union that drinking vodka can treat or prevent diseases. And that is wrong. Uh, I doubt that it's wrong because I saw it on a billboard <laughs> of the liquor store near here. Yeah. had a big sign that says "Alcohol kills germs." Well, well, let me let me let's unpack that a little bit. It's definitely wrong with respect to vodka, and and the government there is trying to communicate to people that drinking too much is a problem. If you get That's sick, just want you what, if you what get, they want you if to you believe. Get sick, you're not going to be able to communicate your symptoms, and you it's know, not going to protect going you. Going anywhere? Let me tell you what the real mistake is. The real mistake is is vodka, and uh, what you really need is a different drink, which is a Polish drink called Spiritus Rectificafana. Rectificafana. Uh, yes, I got it. What a Polish accent. Thank you. And that drink is 96% alcohol, and the journal says it serves uh, two purposes, uh, as a store of liquor in a lockdown and an ingredient for homemade sanitizer. When you have 96% uh, alcohol, all you have to do is combine it with some aloe and some lavender. And that's what they suggest here. <laughs> aloe gel and lavender. And it is a perfectly good sanitizer. you just sanitizer. dab it all over? No. You need Listen, the aloe. You're it's in bigger too- trouble if you start. What if you get desperate? You start drinking that oh, instead of wait drinking a the normal vodka. Wait a second. I think you're in much more Wait a danger. second. Let me go back to what we were talking about a moment ago, Russian drinking the, the, uh, the vodka doesn't help. Well, the people who really are proponents of the spiritus spirit uh, say it does help. They say Polish lore has it that spiritus can cure anything. Feel a cold coming? Have some spiritus. Sore throat? Same cure. And they quote people who say this is like magic. You can use it for anything. It kills anything. Now, you put it in some tea. This reminds you don't me of straight. Windex yeah. in uh, my big fat Greek wedding. Did, is that, yeah, that yeah, right? yeah, they, yeah. But, but it's a little different because they they didn't drink it. I think they, they use it, as a, it to cure If you everything. cut yourself, they put Windex on You can on. decide anything. We'll, yeah. we'll cure everything. Yeah, but just, so, just before you dismiss this as totally uh, obscure. They've and, done studies? And, and, and totally. They've done studies that were financed no, by no, the no. spirit No, no, no. There's company? no studies. But here's what I'm saying is this is big in the U.S. In Greenpoint, Greenpoint, Dunn's. Brooklyn. Yes. Brooklyn. Yeah. Right. Dunn's Pomos Liquors was bustling with customers on a recent Friday afternoon. In March, the store sold 1,200 bottles of Spiritus in two weeks. And they haven't sold that much in two years, probably. Right. It yeah, is that is, that, there is a big uh, Polish uh, population. population there. Yeah, That's Maya right. goes there to get um, great right? kielbasa and stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, it's $20 a bottle, and people are snapping it up. Now, whether they're using it for sanitizer, because they think drinking it is going to kill the virus, I don't know. But it's uh, you know a double dose of doogie. I wouldn't be surprised if they are using it for sanitizer. Twenty dollars a bottle? Well, you only need a little bit at a time, mm. right? And um, I don't know. You know, all alcohol is expensive by the ounce. I don't, I don't know how if much. If you have sanitizer. just straight alcohol, what does sanitizer cost? Um, I have no idea. But if there's none available, yeah, you're okay. desperate, and well, you're trying to save lives here. There you go. And once again, uh, we have the Poles out doing uh, the Russians here because Spiritus is the way to go. Not vodka, for those wondering what to do at home. That's right. Russians just not drinking high enough proof. Right. Got it? Exactly right. Whoever said that to the Russians before? Yeah. We're the first. Um, Speaking of expiration. Yeah. uh, So, (laughs) there's a um, fun article fun for me in the New York Times this week about paying attention to expiration dates and uh, because we're now like in a position where you're actually using the products in your pantry okay using all those uh, you know bottles at the back of your refrigerator and wondering are they you know going to kill you or not can you still use them so as a nice little guide in the New York Times about what will last forever including all right, the things you don't have to worry about. Yeah. Vinegar, honey, vanilla. You know, vanilla is all alcohol, most, a, a lot of alcohol. Um, other extracts would also have alcohol, probably. Sugar, salt, corn syrup, molasses will last and not change. Really? For pretty much Even corn forever. Syrup. Okay. Well, corn, yeah. But what's, yeah. what's the deal with flour? We were debating flour the other day. Flour, well, that's interesting, okay? White flour, certainly fine to use no matter what its age. 
I dispute that because I have used my mother's 10-year-old flower and with disastrous results. Let me explain to you a phrase, no matter what its age, okay? You're not taking your mother into account. Your mother has flower 10 years old. What they mean no matter what its age, they mean 8 months, 12 (laughs) months. I don't know. They don't mean 10 years, okay? Your mother's in a class by herself. Whole grain flower, not so much. What does that mean? Um, you know, like whole wheat flour. It goes bad? It goes bad in a few months. It takes on what oh, they really? call a soapy taste. Mm. It's not going to kill you, but um, okay. it will. that's because it's less refined and it contains some fat and the, it's the fat that goes off first. Well, that's okay? disappointing. Same thing with rice. White rice, you know, enriched white, uh, yeah, yeah, refined yeah, yeah, right. rice. That stays forever. Keeps yeah. forever. Yeah. Brown rice. Not so much. No. Okay. okay. So some other uh, helpful tips, um, uh, spices, not as potent. Yeah. You know, there, there's, a bit, oh, they'll, they'll there's been a lot of spice shaming in the yeah. last uh, few years since with all these cooking shows and so on. Because people have old spices? Yeah, yeah, because we all buy spices and then you, you know, you have that, uh, well, you know. Talk about my mother. My mother had spices from 1948. In she kitchen. really did. Yeah. She actually did I, I, because yeah. I was familiar with the, some of the, you know, those little tins right. that the spices used to come in. And right. that hasn't been around since like the oh, 50s, yeah. all, 60s. All, all yeah. metal tins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. McCormick. It's still there yeah. and still, you know, saying, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. I've got this. Here it is right That's here. Right. No, I, no, 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 I no. have newt. <laughs> uh, anyway, and they say they're not as potent, but there's nothing criminal about using them unless you consider a fra- flavorless chicken paprikash a crime. No, not a crime. Not, not, not in this part of the, the country. Uh, here, how about beverages? Okay. Canned beverages. They go. Yeah. Theoretically keep forever. Is that right? I also don't Beer think that's doesn't true. Keep I've, I, I have, uh, we had a um, six pack of Coca-Cola yeah, in the refrigerator bad. once goes, and yeah. it really tasted right. awful right. after Might have been a, 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 like a couple years. Could have been a bad batch. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Is there any such thing? So it says, well, what it says is cans of soda will keep their fizz. Ah. All right. So maybe it was fizzy. It just yeah. wasn't uh, was tasty. Yeah. Glass bottles keep up for a year. Okay. Um, and plastic bottles for only for a few months. Mm-hmm. So because plastic allows they, gases yeah, yeah, to they, they lose escape it, right. and so on. So uh, there is that eggs. Yeah, eggs are funny because there's a lay date on them. Yeah, and uh, you can you can look at a um, uh, what do you call it? A flat of eggs. Yeah, uh, and and egg there's a three. Yeah. An egg carton. There's a three-digit number, mm-hmm. okay, called a Julian number. So it tells you what day it was produced. Mm-hmm. So if it's 005, it was like the 5th of January, okay. right? Okay. Um, so you know what day it was produced, and then it also tells you um, what day uh, it was packed, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't know if I'm getting this right. Well, no, I, no, no. It represents the day that that first date represents the day they were packed, and then they have an expiry date. It's usually like thirty days, but it's good for another thirty days. Uh, basically, well, eggs are good for at least sixty days, right. maybe more. But that but little how container, about, how, the make shell. It simple. Can we make it simple? Thirty days past the expiry date. Okay, and the shell. Go ahead. You were saying the shell is a fa- fantastic yeah. uh, container, mm-hmm. and in fact, so it would be sixty days. But the article here says you can go longer. Yeah. Eggs stay long for a very good time. Uh, What about milk? From the moment you open a carton of milk, bacteria start to digest the lactose. That is the milk sugars. Okay? So it's starting to deteriorate the moment you open it. Okay? Um, Once the pH hits 4.6, you begin to see those lumps. All right? right? Now, there is longer-lasting milk. It's milk that is... Um, uh, processed at a ultra high temperature, UHT milk. Very often the organic milks are like this. And I did notice that because you remember Dixon uh, early on in this process? Yeah, got us Dixon some milk could only bag. get a gallon oh, of okay. milk By accident, and it was organic. Yeah. And it said on it, you know, it had this a crazy date. Mm-hmm. Um, you're used to it being like a week or two weeks. It had this crazy date. And I said, how could that be? This is why it was UHT. Okay. Um, so, uh, but, uh, so you can, um, All right. go for that. So that's just some tips. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, that's days. good to know. But in general, 
expiration dates for the week. <laughs> it's not the main <laughs> message. It's not the headline. They do have expiration dates. But they do. Oh, well, actually, none of it means expiration. They just mean best used by. Well, it just means, um, what did they give? Uh, best sold by? No, it's not even that. It's, um, da 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 um, Yes, it acts solely as a manufacturer's best guess as to when the product will no longer be at its peak right, best, quality. Best buy. Yeah. So it's really not about yeah. That's right. expiring. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, so here's something which um, the Times did um, in the theater area. Uh, the two critics that uh, are prominent in the Times, Ben Brantley and Jesse Green, were naming the their Desert Island album, was namely the uh, cast albums, uh, the show albums that they would take with them if they were in isolation, and which is what they are right now. And the lists are interesting, uh, and they kind of are what you'd expect, right? So I'm going to run them by you. I'll just throw these names at you, and you're going to nod your head or tell me no. But Ben Brantley comes up with, uh, he wants with him, Chicago, Follies, Gypsy, Hamilton, my Fair Lady, Oklahoma, Sweeney Todd, West Side Story. I mean, those are, you know, right up there. I mean, you, we can fuss about a little bit. So you go to his interesting choices or surprising. The one that's surprising to me, he also has Grey Gardens. And maybe we should listen to Grey Gardens a little bit more. Yeah. To him, that's a yeah, seminal album. Yeah, I know Grey Gardens pretty well. Album. But those are, some of the songs are cute. Some of them are annoying. I'm not sure I want to be alone in... Yeah. You know, isolated with yeah. only that album for yeah. you know a very long. But time. But those are very much you know. Yeah. Okay. And that's the Twenty Seven Yankees. That's you know? Ben Bradley. That's yeah, Ben Bradley. So Jesse Green, I got Jesse Green says, look, you know, some of these are so standard that I have them imprinted in my memory. So I Jesse Green to come up with other things that are a little more edgy. All right. So he's not rejecting Ben Bradley's list. He's saying I got to come up with something else. Yeah, because some of them are. You've heard them too many times, and you just you don't even hear them when you're listening to them. Well, I will say this that. Uh, Brantley notes, they both note, he says, look, if you're getting an album or you haven't listened to it, you haven't seen the show, don't read the liner notes. The best thing to do is, number one, to get the original cast album, which I think we generally agree with, and number two yes. is listen to it because you make your own story to it. And I think that's true. I think when we listened to albums oh, yeah. growing up, oh, yeah. we didn't see the shows. He says, that's important. You don't want to be slavishly following somebody's written script. You make your own story. It's going to be the most compelling. Well, that, for that's you. what I did. I, yeah. You know, I grew up listening to the albums. Right, to My Fair Lady, and or I did like not go to right. the play for right. many. And you know, in some cases, you saw, saw a movie of it. And, mm. But uh, um, there are still things that I finally that I know every single song, and I see the show mm -hmm. at encores or whatever, and I say, "Really? Yeah, that's what happens." Well, you know, it's funny. So there are some shows. Look, My Fair Lady. I think it's so literate. You can follow it from yes. the music. Yeah, it tells uh, the story. But when you do a Sondheim thing, you listen to Follies, you don't know what the hell's going on. Right. But exactly. the music's great. Yeah. Uh, all right. So in any event, uh, Jesse Green's choices. Uh, the Band's Visit, which I think was okay. Not too exciting. Uh, Carolyn or Change, but didn't get to see. Maybe one day we'll get to see it. Uh, the Last Five Years, you hear that on the Broadway station once in a while. There's some good songs. The Light in the Piazza, he gives a shout out to Kelly O'Hara and Victoria Clark. That's probably uh, well-deserved. Uh, but here is, you know, Passion, another Sondheim, She Loves Me, which is interesting to me that he put yeah. that on his list. And here's most interesting, you'll like this, Most Happy Fellow. Yeah. And uh, he goes on about, you know, capital R romantic musical, you know, Puccini pastiche is beautifully captured, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I thought that was interesting. The one that he has that I think is a little questionable to me is Hairspray. I don't think no. I could listen to Hairspray for too often. But I certainly could listen to Most Happy Fellow. The funny, funny thing is that um, this idea of Desert Island, I'll just give a plug to a classic stage. Uh, wait a minute. Wait, before you give the yeah, plug, Dad, yeah, yes. what would you take? Well, I'd take a lot of these. I, you know, I, I would... I, I, Guys and Dolls is not there. I would take Guys and Dolls. Yeah. And I haven't sat down and thought through, but the original list that uh, you know that Brantley had, it's kind of hard to argue with those kind of things. I didn't really give, give it a hard think, but you know, I, I would take Carousel uh, uh, over one or two of those. Yeah, I know I like that more than you do. Um, uh, yeah, I think you need something that has a good variety of changes of you know different sort of styles and moods. That's uh, where you know most happy fella. Get you there's some somber tunes, there's some yeah. funny songs. Uh, you know, it takes you a lot of different. Oh, all right, I've always thought that one of the greats has to be West Side Story. Well, I, okay. because after I was just going to say to you, 
After no. all these years driving and playing CDs and tapes or whatever in the car yeah. a million times with the kids, whatever, that always works. Okay. You okay. never get tired Let of it. Let me just say, I was That's... about to say, yeah. number one clearly is West Side Story. Yeah, I think you so. Did, just because the music's the best. It, it's really that simple. The music simple. is superb, and of right. course, right. the uh, language is superb. Right. But uh, so, so everything else yeah. is, is a half step below that. Everything. Yeah. But uh, but I would see. I like Funny Girl. You don't love Funny Girl. Uh, it's a matter of what you I, like. I wouldn't sit all the way through it. But I mean, there are lots of stuff I like. I don't really know if I if they would last with me. Well, give me just Nothing one has. that comes. You haven't given me a new one. Uh, well, Titanic. Okay. You know. All right. Was uh, Titanic to me, quite is quite marvelous. It's highly musical and still so makes it, you know it, it, still makes me laugh or it. cry or whatever. Yeah. Um, all right. Titanic and, you get know, and for that. I, I agree with most happy fella. I also, um, oddly enough, kind of enjoy Full Monty to what? listen to. What? Yes. What? Have yes. you ever heard that album all the way through? Uh, I've heard most of the songs, and uh, well, you know, to, we can play it sometime. It makes me laugh. I may know one song from Full yeah. Monty. Who wrote it? You, you don't. I, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Know anything about I think it. I do know. I think it was that woman we had, Gina Tesori, we mentioned a few weeks oh, ago. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but wow, that's obscure. That's obscure. Well, I'm yeah. going to have to listen to that I'm not even now. sure I would ever go to see it, but I just... No, uh, no, no, no. You know. Well, you can't. It's risque. <laughs> you want me to tell you what that's about? It's you probably... About, you don't even a, know. No, I know. <laughs> it's about guys... I think I saw the movie. No, it's I about... I think I saw the movie. You're going to be shocked. It's about guys taking their clothes off. Well, who wants to see that? Nobody wants, <laughs> nobody wants to see that. I'm with you. It has uh, some very funny songs. All right. Well, I'm going to have to listen to that and see what you're up to, but... Uh, I, let me give this quick plug to Classic Sage, which is that they're doing what they call Classic Conversations, and they're doing it online, so you can get on the, the Classic Sage really? website. Really? They're doing it online? Exactly right. So you hear uh, John Doyle, who's the artistic director, interviewing the members of the cast of the upcoming production of Assassins, and he talks in for 30 minutes. It's a friendly conversation. It's a little bit of, it's almost like professor-student, because that's the relationship he yeah, has with okay. these folks. Um and I guess uh, we saw I saw Brandon Urbanowitz last week. It's Will Swenson next week. Wouldn't be surprised if Audra McDonald, her uh, his wife, shows up because they do it at their home next Thursday. Okay, go. You're what, on. what was your point? My point is people might and, want to tune and into it, that. He asks them what book they oh, would oh, yeah, take on he, a desert. He, island. No, he does the desert island thing. He, he does more than that. He says, oh, what, "What what songs would you take?" Oh, what songs? Well, he does it in a half half ass fashion, honestly. He says to them... Uh, I mean, what songs would you allow yourself to sing if you were well, alone? First, he says to them, sing me your favorite songs. And he said, okay, of those favorite songs, which is the one you would take to a desert aisle? And that's literally what he does. That's conceptually difficult I, for me. Listen, I, I didn't want to drill down on this. And then uh, he asked what book they would take besides the Bible and Shakespeare because, according to John, you got to take that with you. So <laughs> I, he's not packing light. Uh, maybe there's a Kindle involved. I don't know. But... All right, so you wanted you had I showed you something about Rockefeller Center. I thought it might catch your interest, and to my amazement, it does. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't like Rockefeller Center? Um, but uh, they all laughed at Rockefeller Center. Yes, now they the all laughed. Yeah, get in. Yeah, that's a quote from a song, actually. Um, uh, yeah, it's another one of these virtual tours yeah. that uh, you know um, is printed in the Times, and uh, what's his name? Kimmelman walks around. Oh, okay. uh, I mean, so um, hard to visualize all this stuff. But the story of Rockefeller Center is just a great story. And so it was fun to read um, all these things and makes you want to go back and look at some, the details of some of these great Art Deco decorated and mm -hmm. styled mm -hmm. uh, buildings. But did you know that the property that it's on was originally owned by Columbia University? Well, only on the theory that Columbia University owned everything in the West Side, but yes. Well, they, um, I didn't know. Okay, so, and uh, it was all kind of derelict, mm -hmm. and the Metropolitan Opera was looking for a new location. Yeah. And so John D. Rockefeller Jr., or Jr., as they refer to him in this uh, um, article, uh, negotiates a 99-year lease yeah. for the Met Opera, mm -hmm. and then... You know, like a day later, the stock market crashes. Mm -hmm. This is in the 20s, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the Met says, gee, we don't think we can build anything. You want to build an opera house for us? Mm -hmm. And he's pissed off and he, you know, his uh, um, instead ends up doing this whole development 
for business. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's how it gets born. And uh, it ends up being kind of an amazing, amazing project. And uh, really, it's fortuitous because people need jobs. And this provides zillions of jobs. Uh, People involved in the construction, like 75,000 people working on this um, building project, this construction project, plus people all over the country crafting the materials and so on that will be involved in building it. So it's a huge deal. They do some very smart things. They get a passport office to be in one of the buildings, which attracts all kinds of travel agents, importers, blah, 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 anybody that has to do with international whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So things like that really work. Um, Did you know, you know where the ice skating rink is? Sure. So that goes through these channel... That, that broad uh, plaza there is the Channel Gardens. Mm-hmm. And part of the idea was to make Rockefeller Center look different. Some of the buildings are shorter so that it's just not part of that canyon-esque, mm-hmm. um, you know, monolithic uh, skyline uh, of uh, the New York City. Well, they have these gardens and uh, fountains and so forth. And then you go down, right, to the skating rink. Mm-hmm. That was originally supposed to be high-end shops. Oh, really? And it was. People didn't want to go down to shop and then have to trudge back yeah. up. But people were happy to go down and skate and enjoy the skating, but also be um, showing off mm-hmm. for all the tourists and people up top. So, you know, even Junior... Uh, made mistakes, but they correct it and figure it out. And then they just uh, go through... Oh, here's another cool uh, aspect of it. Um, On one street, he notices there's kind of a hole, and uh, trucks drive down it. Deliveries to the building are made from underneath. Mm -hmm. So between 49th and 50th Street, 5th and 6th Avenue, you don't have... All these big trucks, double oh, parking. Really? Um, so there were so many uh, strategic things. And of course, the art is tremendous right. fun. Um, there are these great stylistic uh, Lachez and, uh, and other people, nudes, etc. Junior hated the nudes. Okay? Right. He was uh, quite offended by them and would actually go to his office uh, through a different door to avoid some of the relief uh, carvings. This is John D. Rockefeller Jr. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, you know, the guy who basically built it. Right. And there's some really fun other um, relief decorations, including one called the Jewish Vaudevillians. Mm. You know, how many uh, um, relief is, uh, decorations do you have? And is that in Atlas New York in front of holding? Jewish Vaudevillians. Is that right? Atlas, the sculpture of Atlas, Atlas holding? Is that Atlas holding the globe at the, in the front of yeah, the Yeah, yeah. And Prometheus over the. You know, in the in the oh, center, that's right, right, right yeah. by a wonderful um, uh, early twentieth century artist, Paul Manship, the mm. sculptor. Oh, um, okay. Well, listen, it's, it's unbelievably impressive. And yeah, so that's fun to learn more about that. So that's a, a fun article to read, just to uh, many more details that uh, I didn't include. It's kind of amazing how deluxe that complex was considering it's being built in the depths of the Depression kind of thing. So. All right. Well, listen, we don't have much sports, but this is just interesting to me in terms of labor negotiations. You can call it genius, you can call it whatever you like. But the, the NFL uh, you know, recently uh, negotiated a new uh, players agreement. Uh, right. They wanted to have more. Well, they had to, they, they wanted to have more games. Well, the yeah. The players you didn't know, want to play more very games. Very smart. Yes, you're, okay. right. you're absolutely right. They wanted to right. go from 16 to 17 game season. A lot of the players were against it. Players who were rich were mostly against it. The up-and-comers said, well, we'll take it because we're going to get more money in the new agreement. Very close, a standoff. And then the NFL came up with something to offer that put it over the top. And what was it? They would no longer test strictly for marijuana. And that put it over the top. And that was genius. And I'll tell you why it's genius. Number one is that it didn't cost the NFL anything. Marijuana is not considered the most horrible thing in the world anymore. It's, it's, it's now legal in a lot of states. And the idea of penalizing players and fining them and testing them all the time for using marijuana, when a lot of players use marijuana, it was really kind of losing proposition. It was an easy thing to give up. And it turns out it meant a lot to the players. Uh, there are a couple of players who have been sitting out, and I heard an interview recently with a guy named David Irving, who is a fearsome defensive end for Dallas Cowboys. There's a picture of Rob Gronkowski. He's in the same boat. 
Guys really? Is, Those guys they smoke want, dope? They want to use it, but they say it's useful for pain. They say you're hurt all the time in the NFL. And right, they'd much right. rather okay, use marijuana yes. than use opioids, which is actually so, much so more let, harmful. So let me get this straight. Now they have an extra game, another opportunity for more brain damage, yeah. um, plus they can take more drugs. Yes. Well, it's, that, it's a win-win. Win-win-win. Yeah. yeah. All right. So there you go. Uh, hmm, that's how you negotiate an agreement. you got to think out of the box. Speaking of the box, you had... Oh, God, Daniel. A refuge for serenity in somber times. Yes. So here's an article in the New York Times recommending Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn mm-hmm. as a place to get exercise and mm-hmm. enjoy yourself, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of, which is, again, genius. Because it's a because park. Because more, more, more and more parks are closed. Right. Okay. I don't know how many cemeteries are really closed, but you remember early on in this whole experience, yeah. we went to Richmond yeah. and I proposed going to Hollywood Cemetery right. and we went. Uh, for an outing. Uh, and there was not a lot of enthusiasm, right. uh, but I'm, you Did- know. Cemetery. I was just going to say, deathly silence is what I recall. <laughs> and we had a great time. It's okay. Because, he, you know what, you had a great time too, because you're out in the fresh air, yeah. uh, and it was beautiful, and you got exercise. Greenwood Cemetery was actually built in 1838, mm-hmm. okay? So it's one of the early purpose-built cemeteries. Mm-hmm. And um, not as early as my favorite, Laurel Hill, which mm-hmm. was 1836, outside That's of Philadelphia. cemetery at a okay? time, yeah. Um, but anyway... Uh, and it's huge. It's almost 500 acres. Mm-hmm. So there's plenty of room to roam around. Uh, and uh, the beauty of it is that, well, it pre- it also precedes public parks. Central Park is mm-hmm. not going to open until 1876. Mm-hmm. All right. It's being proposed during the 1840s. But uh, so... My point is that these cemeteries were the early public parks. Right, right, right. There was a the knowledge that people in cities needed to be able to get out and get fresh air. And this was a real problem in terms of public sanitation, et cetera. Um, You know, the opportunity to get exercise and get fresh air was somewhat limited. So to have uh, these uh, cemeteries not just function as cemeteries, but also be, you know, public spaces Mm -hmm. where you can uh, exercise. So it's just an article saying, of course, it's interesting. Of course, it's, you know, beautiful, has all kinds of, you know, uh, little interesting buildings, monuments, um, trees, plants, uh, etc. So, uh, again, um, think about a cemetery as a place where social distancing can easily be maintained. Yes, I'm sure it can. uh, Usually. Uh, so Brian Dennehy died this week, uh, and Brian Dennehy was in uh, a lot of television, a fair number of movies, uh, Silverado has, has come to mind, but others too, many others, um, big burly guy, uh, appealing actor, but I'll just mention quickly, the reason I, uh, think of Brian Dennehy is because of a production I saw of Death of a Salesman in 1999 in New York, starring Brian Dennehy. And it was amazing. I mean, it was, um, I'm not the biggest Arthur Miller fan, although I respect Death of a Salesman. I had seen movies uh, with Dustin Hoffman and Lee J. Cobb. It's a seminal work, et cetera, et cetera. It's not the happiest thing in the world. It's not uh, necessarily, and you passed on it. I went with a friend of mine. Uh, yeah, and not, it, not, not my favorite. Right. Not my desert island But I will tell play. you, it was fantastic. Uh, he was fantastic, and uh, rather than me go on, because my view doesn't mean that much, I'm going to read Ben Brantley. In addition to the obit, Ben Brantley has a special piece, and what is it about? That production of Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. And what this is what he says. He says, on a November night 22 years ago, I walked into a theater in Chicago and straight into the depths of depression. I felt privileged to be there, because my guide that evening into the state of paralyzing unhappiness was Brian Dennehy who was making one man's inner darkness uncannily visible as a title character of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. Uh, The agony that Mr. Dennehy exuded should have been unbearable. But when darkness is rendered with such glowing detail by an actor of such strength, it becomes a triumph over the night. That's what was well written. I mean, I I can't get into the whole story. That was 22 years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago. Well, that was Chicago, it was nineteen ninety nine, so I probably saw it in two thousand in New York. But it is a it's a memory play, it's a difficult play, 
Uh, it's a sad play about uh, a fellow who, uh, you know, has been lying to his family and lying to himself and becoming, beginning to recognize and come to grips with his own in inconsequential nature. And it's, it's very sad. But uh, powerful performance. Brian Denny. So I have an obituary also, and that's of Irena Chalmers, uh, who was a writer, New York Times says, who saw the future of food. So she was actually born in London, um, and uh, she was one of those key people in the food world that I'm not sure I ever really knew of her or noticed her at all. But she had an interesting beginnings in food. She actually, um, uh, you know, uh, in the 60s, had a shop in North Carolina of, uh, you know, um, specialty food items and uh, cooking and, and was a cooking school. She gets stuck with six fondue pots that she can't, she's having trouble selling fondue pots. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she writes a little pamphlet called Fondue Cook In. Oh. And uh, it's wildly popular. Okay, and she, uh, you know, does a land office business, and then she writes more little pamphlets. Turns out people like a short little book about, you know, Cooking. how to cook this, right. how to cook that. It's not, it's right. not huge. So she gets that going. She um, ends up also writing. You know how you get uh, a few recipes when you buy the Cuisinart machine mm -hmm. or the blender so or she something? Would write those. She wrote a lot of those. Right. Um, so uh, and uh, that blossoms into. Um, sort of a, uh, what do they call it? A, a business as a book packaging company. And she ends up uh, working with a lot of the um, uh, food writers that we think of as pretty famous. Uh, Barbara Kafka, Rose Levy Birnbaum, Peter Kump, uh, Natalie Dupre, uh, etc. So she, you know, ends up with this whole food career. She's, you know, um, quite, uh, you know, internationally uh, renowned. She founds various professional culinary organizations, etc. Uh, she has one great uh, quote. I'm sure she had many in her lifetime, uh, but there's one great quote here. She um, took a contrarian view on trends. I think insisting on having a free-range chicken, she often said, is like having a free-range boyfriend. You never know where he's been. All right, and finally, um, and it's a little bit of a down note, but I just thought it was interesting. Uh, the Journal just uh, did a piece called, at a, apropos of nothing, Masterpiece, The Grapes of Wrath, 1939 by John Steinbeck, and writes about what a monumental book it was and what a great achievement it was, uh, and includes in the article a quote by an Indian novelist who says that the regularity of middle-class life has dangerously promoted the illusion that the natural world is predictable and benign. And that's what uh, Steinbeck took on when he wrote about the Grapes of Wrath. The Grapes of Wrath is about so-called Okies in Oklahoma in the 1930s in the Dust Bowl. Mm -hmm. And there's a drought. And the drought is the drought. And, and they can't do anything about it, these folks in Oklahoma. And they put all their belongings together um, in their vehicle. And they head west. And they have hardship upon hardship upon hardship. Uh, and uh, it, it's a sad story. It was a, it was a brilliant movie with Henry Fonda. It was the book that probably was the key to Steinbeck getting the Nobel Prize in 1962. Um, and uh, I'll just read again. This will be the, the last paragraph by this fellow Robert Kaplan explaining why he thinks this is a masterpiece. In vividly depicting how a natural event of vast proportions can shape the destiny of whole populations and wreck the dreams of families and individuals, bringing even further hardship to their lives, Steinbeck is an expert at seeing humankind as both exalted and as a species dependent on nature. The Grapes of Wrath is a literary demonstration of how the fickleness of fortune, of the fickleness of fortune, and how even human agency has its limits. All right, I'm not saying that's the coronavirus, but uh, it was sobering. Uh, so that's it. Well, we have right. a lot to say today. Uh, yeah. This is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. See you next week. I hope so. <laughs> They all laughed at Christopher Columbus when he said the world was round. They all laughed when Edison recorded sound. They all laughed at Wilbur and his brother 
when they said that man could fly. They told Marconi, while this was a phony, it's the same old cry. They laugh at me, warning you. Said I was reaching for the moon. But oh, you came through. Now they'll have to change the tune, yes. They all said we never could be happy. They laughed at us in how. But oh, 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 who's got the last laugh now? They all laughed at Rockefeller Center. Now they're fighting to get in. They all laughed at Whitney and his cotton gin. They all laughed at Fulton and his steamboat, Hershey and his chocolate bar. Ford and his Lizzie kept the laughters busy. That's how people are. They laughed at me, wanting you. Said it would be hello. Goodbye, but oh, you came through. Now they're eating humble pie. They all said we'd never get together. Darling, let's take a bow. For ha, 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 who's got the last laugh now? Let's pass that. Who's got the 